0: If you have your Bibles, would you please grab them and turn with me to the little epistle of Jude. This evening we'll be looking at verses 24 through 25 and finishing this letter. It's going to be the fifth and final sermon in this letter. I would remind you again, brothers and sisters, that this is God's... Holy Word, our only rule of faith, life, and obedience. Hear it now. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for each other. And Father, we especially thank you for your holy word. Lord, you did not owe it to us to give it to us, but you did. And Father, we thank you for it. Father, we thank you for the epistle of Jude. Lord, for its usefulness and timeliness, for its edification and for its warnings both to those who read it 2,000 years ago and to your church here today at New Covenant Presbyterian Church. Father, we pray that you, in your grace and mercy, would grant to us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the softened hearts that would be able to receive the Word of God as it is preached this evening. We pray it all for your glory and kingdom's sake. Amen. These last two verses are going to be our focus for the fifth and final sermon in the letter of Jude. And these two verses present us with a doxology. Doxology, not a benediction, a doxology. A doxology is an adoration, it is a blessing, it is a word of praise given to God from us. And that's exactly what we have here at the end of the epistle of Jude. We commonly sing a doxology in many of our services saying together every week usually praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's a word of blessing to God, of praise, of adoration, of thanks to God. As is our text here this evening in Jude 24 through 25. This is a doxology here at the end of Jude, not a benediction. And there is a difference between the two. There is a difference between the two. They're both blessings But the direction is different. A benediction is a blessing from God to you. A doxology is a blessing from you to God. They're both blessings, but the direction is different. In a benediction, the blessing goes from God to you, whereas in a doxology, the blessing goes from God to you. And here we have the latter. And what's interesting about this is that this is yet another area, as small as this letter is... And I can't tell you how often in the last few months of sermon prep that I've went to flip to turn to Jude. And I flip right past it because the singular page has stuck to the back of Revelation chapter 1. It's that small. Yet there has been a number of ways as we've made our journey through this little letter that Jude has stood distinct from the rest of the New Testament epistles. And this is another one of those places. Virtually all of the rest of the New Testament epistles conclude ...with something along the lines of this. Grace be to you. Or grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... ...and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Or peace to all of you who are in Christ. Those are all benedictions. Blessings from God to you. In fact, by my calculation, and I always reserve the right to be wrong... ...but by my quick scan through the New Testament... I can only find two other New Testament letters that end with doxologies like Jude. It's rare. It's not common. Which makes sense, honestly, when you think about it. Because in those letters, as you scan through the New Testament epistles, especially think about Paul's letters. In those letters, usually the entirety of at least the second half is filled with what? Profoundly difficult calls to obedience and perseverance. They're filled with hard challenges and calls to holy obedience, even in the face of temptations and struggles and persecution. And so by the end of all those exhortations and commandments, we need the encouragement found in those benedictions. They remind us that we do those things not in our own strength, but resting and trusting in the finished work of Christ. Yet Jude concludes his epistle, not with a benediction, but with a doxology. Jude has given us throughout this little letter, multiple strongly worded exhortations and challenges. He's warned us repeatedly of the dangerous false teachers in our midst of divisions and of the wicked perversions and heresies that we face in the world. And so as we get to the end of his letter, we may be expecting and honestly feeling like we need a benediction. Jude, we need one. With all that you've given us, we could really benefit from a benediction right now, and yet we find a doxology instead. Many actually wrongly refer to these two verses as a benediction. Maybe on the one hand, because they're used to always finding benedictions at the end of letters, so they just make an assumption. But in all fairness to them, on the other hand, if you look at the content of this doxology, there's a lot that it has in common with benedictions. So much of the praise that we find in this doxology is Jude praising God... Giving doxology to God for God's benedictions to us, for His blessings to us. And so this is a doxology. Yeah, it is praising God. But so much of it is praising God for what He's done for us. And so we learn here that doxology and benediction are not really independent from one another. But in actuality, they they feed into and inform one another. As God blesses us, benediction... We praise Him. Doxology. And we're really taught here at the end of the Jude by by Him concluding this letter. A letter again, remember, a letter filled with warnings and strong exhortations. We're reminded and taught here by Him concluding this way with the doxology. To praise God even in times of challenge and conflict. To praise Him even in times of discord and discouragement. And so then we'll see three reasons for our doxology in this passage. We praise God first because He is the only God. We praise Him secondly because He is the only Savior. And we praise Him third and finally because He is the only Lord. And so first we find that we praise God because He is the only God. Jude declares in verse 25, he declares his praise to the only God. And brothers and sisters, we rejoice this evening along with our brother Jude that there is only one true living God, the triune God of the Bible. We rejoice along with our brother Jude knowing and professing that anything else worshipped as God is either a man-made idol or someone or something falsely claiming to be God. We know this evening that there are not many gods. We know that God is not simply the first, best, or strongest God among many others. But that He is the one, the only, the true, and the living God. That He is the creator and the sustainer. That He possesses, as Jude tells us here in our passage, all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And not just for some time. But Jude makes clear that we're on the same page here before all time and now and forever that God is the everlasting, eternal God. The Bible makes all this abundantly clear. There are no other gods. The triune God of the Bible is the only one. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, Know therefore today and lay it to our heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. We're told in Isaiah 45, 18, that the Lord says who created the heavens. He is God. Who formed the earth and made it? He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. We're told in Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8, that the Lord says, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. The sarcasm here is ripe. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? No. I know not any. There are no other gods. And that's not just to say that that's how it is now. There were no gods before God. There are no other gods now. And there will never be any other gods. He is the only God from eternity past. He is the only God now. And He will always and only ever be the only God. Isaiah tells us in chapter 43 verses 10 through 11 that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. He is the only God. And Jude tells us that he possesses all, all of the glory all of the majesty, all of the dominion, all of the authority before all time and now and forever. We'll save our breakdown of each of those for the third point. But let it suffice to say for right now that all of who God is, His attributes, who He is, there's never been a time and never will be a time where He's lacked any of them or lacked anything for that matter. Because God is eternal. He is everlasting. He is self-sufficient. He is immutable. He is the only God. What does it mean that God is eternal? As Jude alludes to here that always has been, is, forever will be. What does it mean that God is eternal? God has no beginning or end. There was never a time when God didn't exist, and there will never be a time where He ceases to exist. God came before all things, and He'll be around long after everything else has passed. God is timeless, ageless, always existing, never changing, and forevermore. He is created by no one, but He Himself is the Creator, and even currently, as we sit here in this place, the sustainer of everything you see. He depends upon nothing and will always remain. God was God, is God, and always will be God. He is forever, everlasting, evermore, perpetual, incorruptible, immortal, imperishable, self-existent, and immutable. The psalmist tells us in chapter 90, verse 2, that before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Daniel tells us in chapter 7, verse 9, that God is the ancient of days. Isaiah 57, 15, God inhabits eternity. Wrap your mind around that one for a second. He inhabits eternity. Before there was a time or a space, God existed. Where did he exist? There was no space. There was no time. When did he exist? Where did he exist? He just was. He inhabits eternity. Whereas as we read in Revelation 1.8, the Lord God Himself tells us that He is the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come. And so, brothers and sisters, we praise God because He is the only God. And I would dare say that it was a, would be a safe bet to say that pretty much everyone in this room, everyone in this room, agrees with everything that was just said. That they know that you know that He is the only God the question for us this evening, brothers and sisters, is do we truly live like that? Do we truly live and worship him as though he is the only God? Or is it maybe a potential likelihood that we have broken the first and the second commandments by placing other people and other things, whether it be a job or a family member, money, family, sports, popularity, power, is there maybe a chance that we've placed any of those things in our attention and in our thoughts and in our time and in our efforts before God in our hearts and thereby made them an idol. We praise God because He is the only God, but also, secondly, because He is the only Savior. Jude declares his praise in verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. And so let's see here in our second point, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. That we have been saved exclusively through Christ, sufficiently through Christ, and permanently through Christ. Exclusively, sufficiently, and permanently through Christ. And so we see first in our second point that we've been saved exclusively in Christ. Exclusively. It's not a word that's very popular these days, but it's a very biblical word. His salvation is exclusive whether it originates in our own depraved hearts or from the world or the enemy, we do nothing but believe a lie when we presume that there are any other avenues to salvation. Any other ways in which God will forgive our sins. Some think that if their good simply will outweigh their bad, then maybe God will overlook the rest. But that's foolishness for at least three reasons. The first is that if God merely forgives sin without punishing it, He would be inconsistent with His own character. For as we read in Psalm 711, He is a righteous judge. A good judge doesn't let evil doing go unpunished. And secondly, if God merely forgives sin without punishing it, He would be a liar. For He has said in His own word that the wages of sin is death. And third... We know from Isaiah 64, 6 that even our best deeds are nothing more than filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. We know from Romans 8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And from Romans 3 that no one does good, no, not even one. Others may try to convince themselves that God simply won't judge at all. This has become shockingly popular in our day and age, even in so-called evangelical churches. This idea that he'll just give a freebie. As long as you do your best and try your best, that he'll just overlook the rest. That's nowhere in the Scriptures. That's nowhere in the Gospel. That is not the God of the Bible. The truth that we clearly see in God's inerrant and sufficient and unchanging Word is that God must punish sin, and he will. And that the only way to be forgiven, the only way to escape his wrath, is to be found covered in the blood of Christ. That's why Acts 4:12 tells us that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself tells us in John 14:6, that no one will come to the Father except through me." There is no other way. There is no other name. There is only one mediator between God, man and that is the God man Jesus Christ. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is exclusively in Christ. But it's also sufficiently, sufficiently in Christ that we are saved. In other words, it doesn't need anything added to it. It doesn't need any help or assistance. If you've ever read the book of Hebrews, you'll you'll find that Repeatedly through it, the author points back to and alludes back to and paints this picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system. A system in which they constantly, day after day, week after week, year after year, had to offer up sacrifice after sacrifice. It took more priests, and it took more sacrifices, more priests and more sacrifices, because neither the priests nor the sacrifices were sufficient. Both died. Both had to be replaced. Both had to be renewed. But, brothers and sisters, we rejoice in knowing that it is not like that with our Savior. It is not like that with our sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice of His blood on His elect's behalf was sufficient, only happening once, a one and done deal. The Word of God makes clear that Christ has no need to be re sacrificed in any way, shape, or form. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28 tells us that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as it appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting Him. Brothers and sisters, His death, His blood, His resurrection... His sacrifice, his salvation is once and done. It is sufficient. It is God. It is Jesus Christ that we read here in our passage in Jude 24 and 25 who is able. Who is able. The Greek word there, dunami, which means power. It's the root word from which we get our word dynamite. This explosive power, it is God. It is Jesus Christ who is able, who is strong enough to keep, to keep you. A word which can be translated guard. It it has with it the connotation of a military protection. Picture somebody walking with bodyguards on either side of them. It's the same word we find in Luke 11.21 where we read that when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Brothers and sisters, God guards you like a strong man guards his palace and his goods because you are his goods. He keeps you safe. It's the same word we read in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, that the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And he will indeed. He will indeed if you are in Christ He will indeed guard you, keep you, protect you from the evil one, from the world, and praise be to God, even from yourself. Even as our inheritance is kept in heaven, so we are guarded on earth. It is God. It is Jesus Christ who is able. It is Christ who has the power, the strength, the capability to keep you, to guard you, to protect you from stumbling into all the sinful ways of the world. Not yourself and not anyone else. So then, brothers and sisters, your faith, your Christian walk is ultimately then dependent on God's strength. Not your own. We have been saved sufficiently in Christ and we see lastly in our second point that we've been saved permanently In Christ, we read here again in our passage in verse 24 that he will keep us from stumbling to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. What a thought. He will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Present here can be translated to make you stand. It's the opposite of the stumbling we've already been told about. He will make you stand. He will fix you in place. He will establish you. He will make you firm before Him. And He will do so so that you are blameless. That is without blemish, like those spotless sacrifices of the Old Testament. He is able to present you blameless without blemish or spot, not because you in and of yourself are blameless, but because your mediator who died in your place is According to Ephesians 1.4, this is what God chose us for. We love as Presbyterians to talk about the fact that God predestined us and chose us. It's what we're going to be talking about all week at summer camp, by the way. We love talking about it. It's our favorite topic. Something that I don't hear us talk about enough, I think, is, is what are we predestined for? Okay, we've been chosen. For what? Well, we're told in Ephesians 1.4 that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is what you've been chosen and predestined for. According to Colossians 1.22, this is what Christ died for. This is what Christ died for. It was in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Remember and be encouraged, brothers and sisters, what we read in John chapter 10, that no one, no one can take His sheep from Him. No one can snatch them from His hand. Remember, brothers and sisters, that He who began a good work in you It is He who will bring it to completion. It is God. It is Christ who is able. Who has the power, the strength, and the capability to guard you and to keep you and to protect you from stumbling into the sinful ways of this world. And He will do so all the way up until the very end in order that He may present you and make you stand firm before the presence of His glory, blameless, without blemish, and without spot, And when he does so, we find here in our passage in Jude that we shall be presented holy and happy unto the Lord. The praise we offer in reflection of this passage pales in comparison to the praise we will issue forth on that day. As Matthew Henry writes, where there is no sin, there will be no sorrow. Where there is the perfection of holiness, there will be the perfection of joy. And so we praise him because He is the only God. We praise Him because He is the only Savior. But also, third and finally, we praise Him because He is the only Lord. Jude declares his praise to Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom He then rightly ascribes glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And we rejoice in knowing that Jesus Christ is our Savior. But he is also our Lord. And I think most really tend to gravitate towards the first one. We tend to really like the first one. Everyone likes a Savior. Who doesn't like a Savior? You know, maybe if that had been all the Lord had claimed to be, maybe if that had been all the disciples had proclaimed him to be, maybe they wouldn't have all been brutally martyred. But that's not the case. That is not all that Christ claimed to be. It is not all the apostles and disciples proclaimed Him to be. Yes, Jesus Christ is the Savior, but He is also the Lord. He is the Master. He is the Supreme Sovereign. He is the one in charge, as we tell our kids all the time when they cop an attitude with us. Who's the big boss? It's not you. It's Christ. He is the Lord. And this is what I really think made the Romans angry. If you read John 19, there where Jesus is delivered over to be crucified and follow the conversation that happens, this really seems to be the heart of the issue. It's not Jesus as Savior, but Jesus as Lord. It's an issue of authority. It's an issue over who is really the sovereign, the master. Who's really in charge here? Caesar or Christ? It seems it was ultimately what the Jews said in verse 12 to Pilate that finally got Pilate to bring Jesus forth for crucifixion. They said there to Pilate in verse 12 of John 19, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And sadly, brothers and sisters, I don't think it's really all that different for too many folks today. Many claim to know Jesus as Savior and to love Him as Savior. They claim to have him as their Savior, but then they show in their life, in their words, and their deeds, no evidence or intention of having him as their Lord. You can't have it this way. This isn't Burger King. You can't have one without the other. If you will have him as Savior, you will have him as Lord. We read here in Jude 25 that he has all glory. Majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. His glory is His weightiness and splendor. It is His majestic, kingly presence. His majesty is His royal status. His dominion is His rule and His reign over all creation. His authority is His absolute power, His sovereignty. It is His right to rule. And in all this, what do we see clearly declared before us? That Jesus Christ is the only Lord. That Christ, and Christ alone, is the Almighty. He is the absolutely sovereign, the King of the cosmos. It is Jesus Christ who has supreme authority, control, and power over all that has happened, is happening, and will ever happen. And yes, even the things that you and I see as bad He has the right. He has the authority. He has the power to govern all that has, is, or will ever happen. This Christ Jesus has complete and absolute control over everything in existence. He is the supreme sovereign over all other rulers and authorities for all time. And His kingship is truly uncontested. This is is not the Greek pantheon. We don't have, as I saw someone call the other day, they referred to uh, the uh, Nordic gods, Odin. They said that Odin was a hick deity. This is, we don't worship some hick deity. His rule doesn't just go over one county or one country. He says over all of it, mine. And he truly is uncontested. That's not to say that no one's ever tried. It's to say that any of their attempts are a laughing stock to him. They're not going to come close. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6, we read, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all kingdoms of the nations, and in your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. We read in the Proverbs in 21.1 that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And Brothers and sisters, it's not just rulers and authorities that he is sovereign over. Jesus Christ is sovereign, as Lord over everything and everyone. We read in Ephesians 1.11 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. There, there is nothing that is outside of it. Job 42.2, especially remind yourself of the context of this book. We read in Job 42.2 that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Psalm five six, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth. In Daniel 4.34-35, we read that His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingship endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Jesus Christ is the only Lord. He is the supreme sovereign. So fear not, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Give praise to God and fear not any man, but rather fear God. And obey Him as the Messiah King that He is. We praise God. We praise God along with our brother Jude. Because He is the only God. He is the only Savior. And He is the only Lord. Amen. Let's go to Him in prayer. And then we'll get to sing together. And do a little bit of that praising after. Let's pray. Almighty God. Father we give You all the praise and the glory. You possess it. You are worthy of it. You share it with no other. Father, we are simply blown away and humbled that on top of creating us and sustaining us and saving us, that You desire us to be here in this place and to bring before You our worship. We add nothing to You. We bring nothing to the table that You don't already possess and yet You desire us and You love us and You call us Your own. We give praise to You as the only God, the only Savior, and the only Lord. Father, we pray now that You would help us to go out this week into the world around us living that out in our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.